Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to ShiftingCulturePodcast.com to interact or donate. If you're enjoying this podcast, please let other people know about it and go to Apple Podcasts and write a review. It will help us out tremendously. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a privilege to be able to do this podcast, to be able to get some great people to interview every single week. And so I am glad that you are enjoying it. So let me know how you like the podcast. In this episode, we have Amy Sherman. Amy is the author of Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good, which was the book of the year back in 2012 for Christianity Today. Uh, It is amazing. I remember uh, reading this book for my master's class back in 2015, 2016, while my wife and I were living in the Middle East working with Syrian refugees. Um, And it really helped a lot to think about bringing uh, foretastes of the coming kingdom of God to the place that we were working and give us some different ideas and some practical things that people are doing all around the world to really impact their community and transform their community for the kingdom of God. This is a great uh, episode. We touch on issues of power, social justice, uh, and holistic transformation. It's a really good one. You're going to enjoy it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Amy Sherman. Well, Amy, welcome, and uh, thank you for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm excited about it. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I remember, you know, I was living in in Jordan uh, and getting my master's at the time, and we were working uh, primarily with Syrian refugees. We were sitting in... uh, in homes of refugees um, and trying to figure out what does it look like for even a refugee community to come and, you know, we could actually see them to start to flourish again, to come back from a place where, you know, there was a lot of destruction and hardship and difficulty. Um, And, you know, in my master's, I was reading your book, uh, Kingdom Calling. It was one of the, the books we had to read. And I got really excited about this idea of actually being the people of God that can rejoice the city, that could bring about this this human flourishing, to bring about kingdom impact that's not just uh, individually based, but it's holistic. Um, where, 
where did that idea for you, where did holistic kingdom impact and community transformation and development come into your story? And what was your path to get to that place? So my own sense of calling has, from a young age, um, always been about how the church can respond effectively to issues like poverty and Mm -hmm. injustice. And I've both been involved in sort of direct service ministries, trying to, on the front lines, um, you know, deal deal with those sorts of challenges, as well as doing indirect ministry, thinking about public policy and how uh, different sorts of policies um, really impact people's opportunities. Right. The research that I have been able to do around the country and and in some places abroad, whether it was for my graduate uh, school or for um, a job I once had editing a a magazine about Christian relief and development, uh, and then into some of the early books that I was writing, that research... um, brought me alongside of uh, veteran Christian community development practitioners. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw in them this commitment to a holistic ministry and heard from them their own sort of articulation of their understanding of scripture and their um, understanding of Uh, Jesus's own ministry and how the holistic nature of God's concern for all different types of poverty and injustice and how Jesus's response to people in need um, was very relational, very personal and very holistic, always treating people, you know, not just as bodies without souls or as souls without bodies. Um, these were some of the insights that um, they were seeking to apply in their own frontline work. And so really early on in my, in my career, I was seeing these, um, you know, examples of how Christians were, were fighting against um, poverty and, and injustice. And I think later on, while attempting to do my own, um, you know, digging deeper into the scriptures, I was able to really, you know, see these things and, and particularly to see the idea of the gospel as the good news of Jesus making all things new. Mm, yeah. So beginning to have this meta story in my mind of an original creation marked by God's normative desire for people to flourish um, and to experience this notion of shalom, peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, and, and peace with the creation, and beginning to understand then that the fall is the, is the, the, uh, the corruption and the breaking of all of those mm. dimensions of shalom. Yep. 
in that Jesus's ministry is this work of restoring um, all those dimensions of shalom and that the end of the redemptive story in the new heavens and the new earth is God basically recreating this mm. holistic shalom in yes. all these different dimensions. Mm. And, uh, you know, as we participate in that holistic work and we're seeing, we're bringing these, what you, I mean, in your book in kingdom calling, you call it foretastes of the, of the coming kingdom of the kingdom of God. Um, you know, where have you seen that, that happen? I think that, I mean, in this past year and a half, I think there's been a lot of uh, a lot of shaking when it comes to the church um, and the impact that the church is having, um, especially in America. Um, but there are pockets and places and areas where there are these tastes of the kingdom of God happening. Uh, where are you seeing it now? One of the ministries that is very close to my heart is a ministry in Phoenix, Arizona called Neighborhood Ministries um, and the church uh, in the neighborhood. And this ministry that really has tried to be among the poor, among the oppressed, uh, among immigrant communities um, in inner city Phoenix. And for, gosh, 30 plus years, enacting this kind of very holistic ministry. But one of the things that that struck me as I interviewed families whose children were involved, as I interviewed teenagers, interviewed various volunteers, was they they would they would talk about, well, the church is doing this and the church is doing that. And and they were referring to everything that this nonprofit organization was doing, you know, whether it was the Monday night program or the mm -hmm. Wednesday night program or the program to reach pregnant teenagers or, you know, whatever. And they were calling all of it church. Yeah. And I thought this is really, really great that, that these folks, some of whom were very unchurched, mm -hmm. um, were seeing all of this activity <laughs> and calling it, this is, this is church. Yeah. Um, in addition to the Sunday services, you know, that 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 happened. And that was beautiful to me because it spoke to me of this incredibly holistic way that this hmm. group of Jesus followers were were being the community of yeah. Jesus for that community. They've been there for a long time. Um, they've been in the same community. They've seen some some things happen. Uh, what's the what's the role of really incarnational ministry of being present and being with people uh, over the long term, um, and maybe not do some some hit and run type of of work, but but being with others uh, for the long haul. I think it's really vital because the kinds of challenges that we're addressing whether it's a school dropout crisis, whether it's um, just really persistent uh, poverty, whether it's trauma, domestic violence, all these different issues, um, they're complicated, um, yeah. they're thick, they're tangled. A short-term response just from a very practical perspective um, 
is is not going to be effective in in, in solving them. So, so there's just a pragmatic reason for why a long-term response is, is required. Um, but I think more important than that, the, the long-term incarnational presence is vital because that's that is what is modeling Christ to people. Jesus himself became incarnate. Jesus didn't save us from afar. He got up close and personal. Jesus fully identified with us in all of our, in all of our suffering and uh, yep. in all of our, in all of our circumstances. Yeah. And so in order to faithfully, I think, um, present, you know, Jesus to people, we like Jesus himself have to, have to be physically relationally mm. uh, present yeah and, and the other thing about that is that that kind of presence is necessary for cultivating the, the sort of deep knowledge of people who are in pain and beginning to see them in a sense beyond their pain uh, a lot of times more short-term oriented responses or less holistic responses, see people with a certain set of blinders on where all they see is the person's need um, right. or the problems that the person has. And they are not able to see the person's assets and the person's dignity and the person's gifts and the mm. way that God has put into that person really unique talents. And that that incarnational presence allows us to much more fully see and and understand and appreciate the people that that we're trying to serve or the community that we're that we're trying to serve and and therefore to be able to design strategic responses to yep. the problems based not only on the assets that we are bringing but also based on the assets that are already resident and that can yeah. be built upon. So we're always looking for, you know, what God is doing, what God has gifted people with, what God has given them, the gifts and talents, the abilities, the the things that they already have. And really the, the solution to people's problems are usually right there in their hands. Um, right. That, and it starts to help people open their eyes. Are there any good ways that you've seen that we could help people recognize their own worth and dignity and assets that they already possess? I'm a real fan of uh, some work out of Northwestern University and a group there called the Asset-Based Community Development mm -hmm. Institute. And they have some really neat tools that uh, are essentially inventories that you mm -hmm. can sit down and and go through with people one-on-one -on -one or in, in small groups where you're asking them a lot of questions to try to elicit, you know, what are the things that they're good at? What are the things that they're passionate about? What are the things that they enjoy uh, doing? What are some of the experiences they've had, the, the life wisdom they've, yeah. they've accumulated? And I, I, I think that that process itself can be empowering if, if the person, you know, hasn't had very many people in his or her life 
who sort of ask them, what are you good at? And what do you like to do? And what can you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. So often people don't get asked those questions and, yeah. and then they begin to internalize a false narrative that they don't have much mm. to offer and that they are only receivers yeah. and, and, and are not contributors. Yeah. Asset-based community development. Uh, yeah, is is a really good tool. My wife and I lead a missions organization that we're sending missionaries around the world. And, you know, one of the things that I don't want to, to have happen when missionaries go around the world is to assimilate to a culture that is not the kingdom of God. It's to assimilate people, you know, say if Americans are going overseas somewhere, I don't want it to look like American culture. I want it to be kingdom culture. Right. Um, and so as somebody coming from the outside and then doing some incarnational ministry um, and staying with people, um, identifying gifts and assets and what people have, what are some, some ways that we can um, help usher people towards the kingdom rather than our own sorts of culture that we, we inevitably bring? Well, I think... Maybe the first step is a very um, deliberate assessment of our of our own captivity to our own culture. Mm-hmm. So starting starting with ourselves or starting with these missionaries that you're gonna you know send off, you know, basically trying to have a a, a ruthlessly honest self assessment about where have I sort of bought into the false narratives of my own culture? What, what idols in the culture are, are my idols too? Am I finding my identity in Christ or am I finding my identity in something else that the culture tells me is the source of my identity? What are my priorities? What are my values? Are those priorities and values things that are culturally defined and, and influenced or biblically defined and yeah. influenced. How do I define success? How do I define the good life? How mm. do I define community? So so I think it be, I think it begins with holding a mirror up to our to ourselves and figuring out where where we're acting or believing in ways that have been inculcated into us yeah. by the culture as opposed to by by scripture and by the spirit. Yeah. And I think that process then allows people to go abroad with a certain sense of humility because when we when we get into a strange place our eyes are very quickly going to see that which is different and right. that which is other. And therefore we may fairly quickly, you know, to be able to identify, quote unquote, what's un, ungodly in that culture or what's right. non-kingdom, you know, yep. in, in that culture. And if we haven't done the hard work of recognizing our own places of cultural captivity, we will be too quick to criticize and judge what's going on in, a, in, a, in another culture. 
I think the process also of identifying where we are ourselves, not being what Tim what Tim Keller calls a, a counterculture for the common good, yeah, um, helps us then to to more clearly see what this kingdom culture is. You know, well, mm-hmm. if if the way that our culture defines community, you know, isn't right, um, why isn't it right? How isn't it right? right. How does it not? What, what are the places where it doesn't sort of stack up against what we see in scripture. Um, That's good. So, so that process is, is clarifying and bringing into sharper focus, our own understanding of the kingdom. And then that becomes the, the paradigm we have in mind when we're trying to assess somebody else's culture. Yeah. To think through where we're coming from, getting getting us uh, to do an assessment of ourselves and our own culture and the culture we're going to, and really digging deep into what is the kingdom of God um, and where are we helping people grow into and what are we trying to, to bring. Um, are there principles that you have found in, in your research that, uh, that helps bring about kingdom impact on the earth? We have a... Uh, a greater influence for the kingdom when we uh, adopt a long-term mentality, mm-hmm. when we recognize what we were talking about earlier about asset-based ministry. I think risk-taking is, a, mm-hmm. is an important principle. Um, when I think about churches and ministries that I've had the privilege of observing and seeing the kind of transformation the Lord has wrought through them. When I try to, when I look at those and then try to think about hmm, what common practices or common principles do I see yeah. in these ministries that have been transformational, I see the asset based, I see the long term, and I see this this willingness to risk. I see this willingness to be creative, this willingness to try things and and to fail. I also think that particularly when it comes to addressing problems of poverty, a common factor in truly transformational ministry is when organizations are focused on helping people build wealth and and build assets. Hmm. So 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 often what what we do is these very short-term responses, right? So we yeah. give things to people, we give food, we give clothing whatever. Then sometimes we graduate from that mm-hmm. uh, in a good way to um the sort of teach a man to fish thing, right? Right? So we started with giving people fish and then we moved into now much better things whether that's helping people get their high school degree or whether right. that's providing job training, you know, teaching English to the, to the immigrant. Those are, those are better strategies, but the, but the best and most transformational strategies go even beyond that hmm. to what uh, I've heard uh, Dr. John Perkins mm-hmm. uh, call, um, you know, owning the pond. So mm-hmm. you go from giving a fish, teaching a fish to, to owning, you know, owning the pond. And so I think about things like, I just wrote a a new book that's coming out next year. And 
there's some church history stuff in the book. And while I was doing the research, um, looking for different examples mm -hmm. of how Christians and churches have engaged in economic ministries, I came across a story about a, a believer named uh, Maggie Walker. Mm -hmm. And she was the daughter of for mm -hmm. former slaves. Yeah. Lived in the, lived in the early 1900s. Uh, lived just down the road an hour from me mm -hmm. uh, in Richmond, Virginia. And Maggie was a believer. Her parents were part of Black Church in, in Richmond. And she was a member of this African-American self-help type society called the, the St. Luke's, something like the St. Luke's Independent Association. I forget exactly what the, what the, what the words were. But basically, in, in this time of really severe racial segregation, a lot of times Blacks would join together in these uh, like mutual aid type societies and mm -hmm. they would um, members would provide dues and then when they had needs they could draw benefits mm -hmm. so whether that was yeah. to pay for funeral expenses or unexpected medical expenses and, and the like and Maggie gets involved with this work as a teenager and these these uh, these societies um, also were places of you know social, you know, events and education and all sorts of stuff. And she ends up becoming, as an adult, the, the leader of this St. Luke Society. And she starts advocating for folks to come together to, to found a bank. Mm -hmm. uh, and after a few years of lots of, you know, promoting this concept and, and trying to get, you know, people on board, she becomes the first African-American female in the country to charter uh, a, a bank. Wow. And the whole idea behind it was that what was this sort of owning the pond mentality? Yeah. Because the idea was if, if she could start a bank and get people to, you know, have their deposits in this bank, that would give them a, a safe place to save themselves mm -hmm. and, you know, build up their, their own you know, asset of a rainy day savings, but also then the bank could become the lender yeah. to help people with mortgages, with small business loans, so that the African-American families could begin to acquire wealth assets that they could then build upon and then transfer as well to future mm. generations. Yeah. So this whole idea of you know, building a bank, you know, that's, that's an own the pond kind yeah. of kind of strategy. And, and that, you know, took it a tremendous amount of uh, effort and risk and, and creative thinking. Um, and I think that there are similar kinds of things, you know, going on now that, that I have seen that also are really aimed at this kind of very long-term transformational impact yeah that's so good i love the the concept of owning the pond uh that you're actually going a step further i mean we have some some things that we try to do that we try uh, especially in africa and asia to help people in communities form form these community banks they're owning mm -hmm. it themselves the assets aren't coming from the outside they're coming from the inside uh, have you uh, seen uh, anything recently that those those are working, um, and are they they are having an impact? Are they working well, or are there are things that we should look out for 
when forming these types of or helping yeah. people form those types of community banks? Well, uh, internationally, I'm a fan of the work of a group called Hope International. Mm -hmm. The founder of that ministry is a guy named Peter Greer. He and I actually went to the same college. I'm, mm. I'm older than him, so he was <laughs> behind me, but I, I like to give him a shout out because he's a fellow Messiah College nice. uh, alumnus. But Hope International is very involved in these sorts of microenterprise development, but yeah. also uh, a primary strategy uh, are these savings circles and savings yep. groups where, you know, groups of villagers in a particular, you know, very poor place will, you know, save, you know, what what is relatively very, very little money, mm -hmm. right? Um, but they pull it together and then one member is able to borrow against that to begin to you know, expand whatever her own little micro, you know, business is, whether yep. it's, you know, sewing or baskets or goats or uh, creating foodstuffs and the like. And, um, and one of the things I love about Hope International is that they have an exit strategy. Hmm. You know, they, mm -hmm. they are coming alongside the local church in that poor community providing training and, and some sort of startup type resources so that yeah. that church becomes the instrument that runs these, you know, savings groups and, and gets folks involved in all of that. And the idea is that, you know, hope's not going to be there themselves forever. Yeah. You know, in three right. years they're, they're, they're going to be gone. And this has to be a sustainable self-sustaining um, you know, ministry that is, that is, that is, that is going on. And they've been successful in doing mm -hmm. that in many, many countries around the world. So I think they're a great story yeah. um, here in the United States. I love a, a church in the Pittsburgh area uh, called Bible Center Church. Cynthia and John Wallace are the pastors there. And this is a relatively small church, um, maybe forget how many members they have, maybe 150 or something mm -hmm. like that. But anyway, there it's a church located in a in a traditionally kind of economically distressed part of the city called Homewood, and it's a very very holistic uh, ministry. So they're doing mm -hmm. education stuff, and they're doing they have an, a little urban micro farm. Yeah. Uh, so they're doing agriculture, food, nutrition. Uh, they started a cafe to have a place. It's a social enterprise for people to get uh, work experience and the like. One of the things that they're doing that I love is called Own Our Own. Hmm. And uh, and that is a, a, an entrepreneurial training program where they're coming alongside folks in their community who have these, you know, side hustles. They've yeah. got their regular <laughs> job, but then on the side, you know, they're baking cupcakes or they're, you know, you know, doing some other kind of uh, you know, lawn care, whatever, whatever it might be, but they, but uh, all of this is operating at a very, very kind of informal uh, and, and micro level. And so they offer this free business training, kind of this intensive training and coaching, and it's helping those entrepreneurs, you know, put together business plans. It's helping them learn how to pitch their ideas. It's helping them think through how to scale up their mm activities. Uh, and again, this is very much an own the pond kind of strategy yeah. because this is empowering these entrepreneurs 
uh, to become stronger and stronger business owners of stronger and stronger businesses that then will, you know, hopefully over time, uh, if those businesses can thrive, that's a, that's an economic engine to hmm. lift that family yeah. uh, out of poverty and something that's an asset that can be transferred to future generations. So I love what what Bible Center Church hmm. is doing. Yeah, that's great. You know, I always I always try to think of the things that we can do to set up a sustainable systems or something that will have generational impact. So downline impacts that will really change and transform society. It's really difficult to think of the solution to say homelessness. Like that's, I mean, because there's all sorts of impacts that happen upstream that we have to change. Um, and so right. it's going to take take all of us, right? It'll take the faith community. It'll take civic uh, duty and civic engagement, the governments. It's going to take uh, businesses, the workplace, the marketplace to be able to do that. Um, you know, maybe owning the pawn type of, of work as well. What is that interplay between these different spheres of of help, of the marketplace, of faith communities and of of government spheres? And have you actually have you seen anybody in your research actually working together to solve uh, systemic problems? I think there's been uh, some progress on that in certain urban settings by groups of organizations that come together uh, in what are what are known as collective impact um, strategies. And these collective impact strategies are they're highly focused on 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 one very particular challenge. Hmm. Uh, so for example, the challenge might be, let's try to decrease the, the high school dropout rate mm-hmm. and, and really significantly move the needle uh, and do that across a fairly wide geography, like a whole school district yeah. or, or a city. Um, and these are multi-sector initiatives uh, where they've got players from all the different parts of society that you mentioned. Yeah. So government and non-government and nonprofit and business and faith community, you know, coming together. I think one of the most successful ones was actually in the Cincinnati area. I believe it was called the Strive uh, Partnership. It's interesting, though. I've I've heard that some people say that collective impact doesn't work as well in non-urban context. I was recently doing some consulting with a with an organization. It's really focused on poverty in these two rural counties in yeah. North Carolina. And, you know, they, the people that we were talking to kind of on the ground and other people that we were talking to who have worked in rural communities were raising some, you know, yellow flags about the transferability of, of collective impact. But I think collective impact is, is one, one example of, of that. Do you do um, they they know in rural communities? Is there do you know a reason why collective impact wasn't working as well? Well, I think I think it was a couple of things. Uh, it was it was not the aspect of collective impact that is all about multi sector collaboration. Mm-hmm. So there was a recognition in that rural context that um, all these different players did in fact need to be at the table. Yeah. So there was an embrace of, of collective impacts idea of, of multi-sector cooperation. Collective impact though 
is fairly top-down driven. Okay. And it's usually, um, there's usually an, an existing organization that kind of plays this centralized coordinating mm -hmm. role. And the feeling was that rural communities um, lacked that kind of institutional player mm -hmm. that had the capacity to sort of drive it. Yeah. The other thing that was sort of interesting, and I don't know where this is, you know, true or not, but there was also people talk about a kind of rural mindset that was very kind of a real independent streak yeah, and not wanting to be sort of told what to do. Yeah. And that the collective impact kind of, this is what we're going to do and we're all going to do it this way. <laughs> and this is how we're going to measure it. And this is how it's going to be designed. And like, this is, this is the roadmap. Now everybody get on this roadmap and follow it <laughs> faithfully that there was something about that, that didn't sit well. Yeah. At least as these folks were perceiving, uh, it wasn't city. It, it would, yeah. it would not sit well yeah. in, in that rural culture. Yeah. I could see, definitely see that in some communities in America that it wouldn't sit well. Um, and very individualistic type. Let's, let's, you know, I'm going to be able to do this and get this done. I'm responsible for what I'm responsible for. Well, there's a, just a, a few things, uh, a couple of things I really like to ask um, as we're we're ending and we're closing this this time. One is, is there anything uh, that you have read lately or or watched lately that you could recommend? One of the things I've been working on recently is a, a half day, three quarter day workshop on racial justice and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. And um, in the midst of that work. I have benefited much from some teaching from a group called Arabon, A-R-R-A-B-O-N. Uh, hmm. uh, their, their founder is a, a guy named David Bailey. And um, I've had the chance to spend some time uh, with him and his staff and uh, read some of their materials. Uh, unfortunately, they don't, they don't have like the book. Yeah. I hope, I hope someday they will write the book. I've learned a lot from, from Erebon. This is not something that I've read recently, um, but I was, uh, I have been very helped uh, by all of Andy Crouch's writings. Mm -hmm. um, and most recently in the last couple of years, reading his book, Playing God, Hmm. which is really an extended reflection on power. I have found his insights about the sort of positive uses of, of power and how people like me, meaning I'm white, I'm middle-class, yeah. I'm highly educated. All of those things are privileges that, you know, came to me. Um, I can't, sort of take credit for any of them, right? Um, yeah. um, and the question is, how am I going to deploy that power and those those mm. privileges? Am I just going to sit around and feel yeah. guilty about having them? Uh, am I going to be scared to use them because power is this like bad thing? Right. Um, yeah. Or am I going to uh, have a, a, a really 
scripture saturated understanding hmm. that that power is the capacity to bring capacity and hmm. and to share capacity with others and to work walk alongside with those who have less of um, worldly defined power yeah. uh, and basically deploy what power I've been given in such a way that creates space and opportunities for them to shine, you know, in, in, into their own, into their own gifts. And that whole paradigm of what that looks like has been very, 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 very helpful to me. And in particular, one of Andy's um, reflections has to do with change inside of organizations. Hmm. So, so you have an organization and something in the organization um, isn't right. You yeah. know, there's some injustice or, or the institution kind of isn't, isn't doing what it's supposed to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not deploying its power in the way that it, that it ought. And he talks about how you have, uh, you know, a relatively small group of people who are like the bad guys so they're deliberately, they've deliberately taken that institution in that wrong direction. Yeah. And they are using their power intentionally to benefit themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're abusing their power. And then you have a few people in the organization, typically, who are the, like the resistors. Yeah. And they're the ones, they're the whistleblowers. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the ones who are standing up and saying, Hey, this is wrong. And, you know, we're not doing the things we ought to be doing and we are doing things we shouldn't be doing. And they're sort of championing for reform, but they're a very small group uh, and they're in the minority and they don't have a lot of uh, influence. They're very brave, but they don't have a lot of influence. Then there's this huge middle group um, that are basically not really doing anything. They're just mm. kind of drifting along. Yep. And, and Andy calls those the underlords. <laughs> so the bad guys are the overlords. Yep. They're actually actively using their power for evil. But then there's all these other people that are underlords. They're, they're not taking up the influence and the capacity that they have mm. to join with the resistors and and sort of fight against fight against the the overlords and he sees that the you know the overlords are sinning because of their wrong yeah their misuse of power but the underlords also are guilty because of their denial hmm. uh, that they have power or their failure to deploy the, the capacity and the influence that they that they hmm. have. And, and I have wow. found that to be a really helpful yeah. way of understanding kind of how how organizations can change and to recognize that not only is it important to champion uh, those resistors and cheerlead them, but also to really try to focus on this huge group in the middle that if you could get a big chunk of them yeah. <laughs> to stop being underlords <laughs> and to actually, you know, grow up into the 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 authority that they that they have the opportunity to deploy, you could really do you could bring about significant mm. organizational wow. change. That's fascinating. 
I think that's really helpful uh, to think through those things. And, you know, I think, yeah, as you're saying, the, the pow- power is the capacity to bring capacity. Um, it's really, you know, it's such a, a great thing for me uh, to hear, you know, as somebody, as a, as a white male um, to say, hey, I have the capacity to bring about the capacity. I have the capacity to champion and empower women and women in leadership and grow them. I have the, the capacity to bring about some racial reconciliation uh, in the areas and to I have the capacity to help people own the ponds. Like that's so, so great that that actually gives me freedom to operate in in places where I do see injustice uh, and things that aren't operating as the kingdom of God should be operating and say, hey, I actually have the, the capacity to bring this. So I'm actually uh, compelled to do so instead of mm-hmm. being able to sit back and be afraid to engage because you know, I do have some power, but I don't want to overstep my bounds right. as a powerful person. Um, so right. that's so good. Yeah. And also, I have another question. If you would give advice to your 21-year-old self, what kind of advice would you give to your 21-year-old self as you look back on your life? Stop being such a workaholic. Hmm. I, I was a workaholic from pretty much like age like 14 to about 40 Hmm. And um, I'm really paying for it now at, at 56 because life is a, a marathon, not a, not a sprint. Yeah. And so I have, I have a lot of I have a lot of regrets about ways in which the work idol and the productivity idol truncated my attention to relationships. Um, you know, I look back with some regret of yeah. people in whom I could have invested more. And, and also, I think I've had some some health issues that, that I probably wouldn't have, or at least they, the, the difficulties of those health things wouldn't have dragged on for so long if I hadn't you know, really kind of abused <laughs> my body yeah. um, during those many decades of workaholism where I wasn't you know, adequately just living into God's rhythms of, of Sabbath Mm. uh, in the way that I, in the way that I should have been uh, living. Mm. So I think, I think if my 21 year old self had, had avoided the the workaholism thing, (laughs) uh, I'd probably be healthier today and maybe would also just feel like I have more sort of more fire in my in my belly left yeah. for these last you know the, the next 20 25 years that I have mm. wow that's good that's so helpful to people to think through how to get rhythms of, of rest and sabbath and um, yeah and to invest in people uh, over over thinking that we're we're trying to be useful to the world, um, yeah, that's really good. Um, yeah, is where can people find uh, any of the work that you're doing or anything that you're doing now? So I have a website that's very outdated, unfortunately, but it does have some good information and stories that are all related to to the Kingdom Calling book that you mm-hmm. mentioned at the outside of outset of the 
podcast, and that website is www.vocationalstewardship.org. The, the subtitle of Kingdom Calling is Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. Yeah. So that website, vocationalstewardship.org, it, it, I literally have not updated it for you know a few years, but, <laughs> but there's some helpful stuff on there. My most recent writings have have mainly been have mainly appeared um, either online uh, with madetoflourish.org. So mm-hmm. Made to Flourish is a national network of pastors for the common good. It's actually headquartered in Kansas City. Um, and they have a very robust online resource library that acts kind of like an online, you know, magazine or something. Yeah. I've written quite a bit for them. And then they also have a quarterly print magazine hmm. called Common Good. Uh, and I've been doing a number of stories for Common Good magazine. So those are a couple of places. I don't I don't right. have an active Facebook page. <laughs> I don't have a Twitter account. All these things that I imagine uh, InterVarsity Press is going to force me to uh, to start. You know, yeah. the, the new book is coming out next year with IVP, and I have a feeling that they're, they're going to, you know, yeah. drag this gray-haired <laughs> non-techie dinosaur into the world of social media, and I'm going to be, you know, kicking and screaming the whole way. <laughs> Uh, that's what you have to tell, you have to tell InterVarsity Press, that's what you pay your interns for, or not pay your interns for, (laughs) is to manage something like that. (laughs) All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, It was wonderful to talk to you. So thank you. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we can see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.